Now, in that image of society, um, people can walk tall. You know, I, uh, th there's a long tradition in Republican writing, particularly in 17th century and 18th century England and America, the English-speaking world, of talking about freedom as being able to walk tall, not having to bend the knee, not having to kowtow, not having to tug the forelock, you know, not having to live under the thumb of anyone else. And it's associated with a sort of forthrightness and frankness. So John Milton, for example, writing about the, the English Republic, talks about in our Republic, people will be able to walk, um, you know, with their head held high. I think I talk about what I call the eyeball test of freedom. In a society where people really did have freedom as non-domination in the range of the basic liberties equal with others, they would be able to look others in the eye without reason for fear or favor. Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. So, as predicted, I received any number of negative comments about the Aaron Ra episode. A lot of hatred of feminism still out there. I'm not going to respond to it now, but I'm thinking maybe at some point of doing an Ask Me Anything episode where instead of interviewing a guest, I take some of the most interesting comments from that as well as from some of the other episodes and respond to them. So, possibly more on that to follow. For now, though, I want to get straight to today's guest. Very excited about this one. I will be talking today with Philip Pettit. Professor Pettit is one of the world's leading scholars and theorists of Republican liberty. Republican, by the way, not in the sense of the contemporary American political party, but as a theory of freedom that emphasizes non-domination. And we'll get into what all of that means. Professor Pettit is a professor of politics and human values at Princeton University, and he splits his time between Princeton and Canberra in Australia. He was born and raised in Ireland. He was a lecturer at University College Dublin. He was a research fellow at Trinity Hall, Cambridge, and a professor of philosophy in the University of Bradford. His work is in moral and political theory. His single-authored books include The Common Mind, Republicanism, A Theory of Freedom, Rules, Reasons, and Norms, Made with Words, Hobbes on Mind, Society and Politics, On the People's Terms, A Republican Theory and Model of Democracy, Just Freedom, A Moral Compass for a Complex World, and The Robust Demands of the Good, Ethics with Attachment, Virtue, and Respect. Professor Pettit, on top of all of that, holds honorary professorships in philosophy at Sydney University and at Queen's University in Belfast, and he's been awarded honorary degrees by the National University of Ireland, the University of Crete, Lund University, the University of Montreal, Queen's University Belfast, and the University of Athens. So this really is one of the best people in the world, arguably, in fact, the best person in the world to talk to us about Republican freedom, or as a comprehensive theory of government. It's sometimes called neo-republicanism, which has the virtue of sounding a little bit cooler. Well, 
to me at least, it sounds pretty cool. So, without any further preamble, it is my absolute pleasure to present Professor Philip Pettit. I am here today with Professor uh, Philip Pettit. Uh, Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Cool. So just to begin with, why don't you introduce yourself? I'll have already given a bio of you before we get to this point, but what do you work on and what ideas are most interesting to you? Well, I'm a, a philosopher. I've worked a good deal in political philosophy and moral philosophy and in philosophy of mind, which I'm coming back to actually just at the moment as it happens. And I divide my time between Princeton in the United States and uh, Canberra, where I teach at the Australian National University. So I teach half, um, one semester, one northern semester each year in uh, in Princeton University and, uh, and the other in uh, the Australian National University. I, what do I work on well? Uh, that should probably appear in the course of the interview, I suspect, at least the political philosophy aspect of my work. Cool. Well, welcome. So, what I wanted to talk to you about today, and I've been wanting to have someone on the show to talk about for a while, actually, is different ideas or different conceptions of freedom or liberty, because it seems to me we're working with a sort of social definition of freedom in an economic sense that's unsatisfying to a lot of people. So to start with, I got a distinction from your paper that you sent me of, this might be a slight shorthand, but um, inherent versus instrumental justifications for economic freedom. So on the one side, there's people, libertarians, who claim that free market transactions are inherently justified. Whether or not the causes are good, you have a right to your property to trade it with other people, and that's something no government can legitimately interfere with. There's then a more instrumental justification, which would be having that sort of free market property-based system tends to lead to good outcomes, but if we could get better outcomes with a different set of rules, there'd be no problem moving to that. Um, my view I'll give away at the outset is I think inherent justifications don't make a lot of sense, but the, the instrumental ones might. So I wanted to start with that. In your view, is there anything inherently good about following free market principles vis-a-vis property rights, um, individualism, and so on? I think that um, it, it partly depends on... Um, and what you're thinking of as the outcome of the consequence that you're looking for. So I think that um, markets, as this is true of a lot of institutions, but markets in particular, if they're valuable, when they're valuable, they're valuable for the fact that they enable people to enjoy a certain sort of freedom, which they would not enjoy in the absence of a market. And um, they enable people to make relationships with one another, with strangers, for example, which they, in the absence of a market, whatever that would involve, 
they would not be able to um, uh, to make. And those relationships, of course, are very important in, in life to create a whole sort of civil society of interacting relatively strange, strangers to one another as they often are. And um, I think that that is, uh, that's a boon, so to speak, that markets can. I say can because they won't always deliver that sort of result. Okay, so what would you make uh, Robert Nozick begins his state anarchy utopia with the claim people have rights? And he seems to mean a set of individualistic property rights by that. What would you make of that as the fundamental axiom or starting point? You know, people have the right to themselves, their property, and to engage in free market transactions. What, how would you assess that as the beginning point of a political theory? Well, I don't, he believes in what are often called natural rights. I mean, these are supposed to be rights, as it were, that you can just, uh, you can just see they're there. They haven't to be justified. They, they are the basic sort of uh, currency of moral thinking. Now, I don't think that it makes much sense to imagine that there are rights that are just there from nature or something. What it makes uh, sense, though, to think is that there are things that we naturally, as human beings, find good or valuable, satisfying, appealing um, as social creatures. And I think that the rights that we give one another should be determined by the goods that are thereby produced. Now, rights, as I think that rights really are just the other side of the coin to rules. Wherever you've got rules, you've got rights. So if you just take the rules of chess. They give you the right to move the bishop on the diagonal, um, but they don't give you the right to move the bishop on in, in, in any other way, for example. Uh, wherever you've got rules governing human behavior, you're going to have a right. What is a right in that sense? Well, it's something that others have got to allow you to do so long as they're as we're going along with those rules. So if you're playing chess with me, you can't say, I don't want you to move on the, the bishop in that position if it's on the diagonal. I have a, as we say, a right against you. You've got an obligation to me to allow me movement, given that we're playing under those rules. Now, whenever you have rules, rules confer, they establish rights. That's what they do. They establish, of course, also obligations, right? Like I'm obliged to allow you use your uh, move your, um, your, your bishop on the diagonal. Now, um, I think myself that someone like Nozick fetishizes rights. He takes rights, so to speak, away from any context of rules and says, they're just rights. These are natural rights. Now, this is an example of what I call the Cheshire cat fallacy. Uh, you remember in Alice in Wonderland, the Cheshire cat is the cat that disappears, but the grin remains. Uh, the Cheshire cat fallacy, as I think of it with rights, is the fallacy of, of thinking that you can remove all rules and still find rights remaining, the sort of rights that rules would establish. We all understand what it is for there to be rights given there are rules, but these people are saying you can pull away the rules and the rights still remain in place, and then they call them natural rights or fundamental rights, meaning there are no rules that support them. There are no rules that they are, so to speak, the other side of those rights. I just think this isn't a matter of being on the left or the right in politics. This is a matter of 
pure philosophy. I just think it's very bad methodology. Uh, it offends against parsimony, you know, the principle that you should not introduce unnecessary entities into a theory to think, oh, I'm going to postulate natural rights. Um, I much prefer to think, look, we understand what, why certain things are good, why they appeal to human beings. We understand why in order to achieve those goods, human beings set up, set up rules so in order to enjoy the, the good that comes of a parlor game. They set up rules like the rules governing chess. And when they have the rules, they've got rights within them. More generally in society, we establish rules, obviously, that um, prevent violence, that establish, you know, order and possibilities of, of exchange between people. And as soon as you have rules like that, whether they're informal norms or formal laws, you've got rights that are the other side of those rules. Okay, so the first point, this could actually apply to either the left or the right, in that you could imagine someone on the political left saying something to the effect of, I have a right to healthcare, or I have a right to a certain standard of living, and just postulating that as a freestanding principle. But equally, it's the case on the, um, I'm just going to use the word libertarian side, in that they generally will start with the view that I have a right to individual control of my property, I have a right to engage in economic transactions. I think the difference for me, and I'd be interested to get your view, is I think there's alternate routes from a more morally consequentialist view to a politically left position. You can easily get to the view of people have certain... Uh, um, um, needs that we want to meet in terms of a minimum standard of welfare and so on. It seems harder to get to a pure libertarian position without just asserting a freestanding or natural or inherent set of rights. And they seem to really rely on that, that even regardless of consequences, you have that set of rights. Yes. I think one thing worth saying is that people who are libertarians are neoliberals hmm. uh, on the right in politics. They're not always uh, fundamentalists in the way Nozick is about rights. They may themselves uh, reject that and have a different sort of foundation for the neoliberalism. Um, but let's talk about the, the ones that do fetishize rights. They, they will, they will criticize somebody like me and saying, well, you say there are always rules in the background when you talk about people having rights. But we say things like people have rights that the existing rules don't give them. We might say about a country that where people actually don't enjoy free speech, that human beings there have the right to free speech. And, um, and they say, doesn't that mean we're postulating a right for which there are no rules? I, I interpret that differently. I think that's a sort of rhetoric you use that's very useful. Um, but what you're really saying when you say, for example, the people in such and such a country whose laws don't allow this have the right to free speech, what you're saying is that it would be good for the laws to change so as to establish a right to free speech. You're asking, you're looking for a change in the laws. You're not appealing to some mysterious fundamental absolute called natural rule-free rights. Right. The idea that rules, we're moving from a set of rules, doesn't mean that we can't form a moral evaluation between two different sets of rules and say that we would prefer this set of rules over the other. Absolutely. We're not, we're not, yeah. Yes. By reference to how much good. 
I mean, one set of rules may not produce very much good. Another set of rules or laws may produce a lot of good for the people living under them. And obviously you prefer the second. Yeah, you know, I think you might be the first um, moral consequentialist I've had on the show. Um, and I'm forever, like, getting stuck with my guests. And where we seem to be getting stuck is I would view rights or yeah, whatever you want to call it as sort of second-order utilitarian principles. So we don't torture people because overall I think there's a good case to be made that societies that torture people are worse places to live even if there might be a local instance where it would maximise utility. Overall, it seems like a pretty good rule for higher welfare or flourishing or just good consequences, whatever you want to call it. And most... I I do want to move on, but it seems to me most people are really resistant to that way of looking at the world, even like professional philosophers or people who've really thought about it. They they really want to hang on to some set of deantic constraints Um, And I'm not really sure why. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think I I do, because uh, if if you have a sort of set of um, absolute deontic constraints, as you call them, like rights, for example, or duties on the other side of rights that are not based in rules and not based ultimately in the good that those rules do, um, that gives you a sort of clarity. it may be mysterious in the sense of where on earth these come from, but it gives you rules to live by that are sort of absolute. Um, you don't have to justify them. You don't have to see the good they do in order to live by them. You just say, this is the rule. It's the appeal of the Ten Commandments. It's the appeal of any, you know, guidelines that are just laid down. And the idea is it's not your part to ask about whether they're good guidelines, um, the guidelines you, that, that's just not your business, uh, you should just follow the, the guidelines. It actually comes from a tradition, I think, of religious thinking, you know, which says, look, God tells us what to do. It's our part to do what he says we should do, to follow the rules that have been laid down, and not to ask about whether or not in a given case more good might be brought about by breaking the rule. Uh, we have to stick absolutely by the rules. There's a, an old Latin tag that goes back at least a thousand years to capture this idea, which is fiat justitia ruit celum, which literally means um, let justice be done, i.e. let the rules be followed, even should the sky fall, should the heavens fall. The idea is God looks after the heavens. God will look after the consequences of following the rules your part is just to blindly follow the rules i mean very few people take that view nowadays i hasten to add but i think that's the the genealogy the origin of the idea and the appeal of these deontic rules is it sort of exonerates you of responsibility to think about the point of the rules But even if we don't have that literally religious view, there is a sort of long shadow of theology cast over these debates, I think, because the the, the religious uncomfortability with consequentialism is is an uncomfortability with centering humans and people or maybe, you know, just centering creatures in general at the centre of our moral system. And you do, I think... The, the the instinct that people have that consequentialism sort of must, there must be something off with it, I think does come 
from even if the person themselves isn't religious, it does come from a shadow of that sort of theology, right? Um, maybe the trouble is consequentialism. It's a terrible word. It was actually yeah. invented by a deep opponent, Elizabeth Anscombe, um, although she used it more broadly than it's used nowadays. I actually prefer to think of think of things this way. Look. In your moral theory, or indeed your political theory, um, there's going to be an issue about what are the fun, what's the fundamental currency, what are the fundamental ideas, and you've got a, a stark choice really between saying fundamental ideas. We we know what certain goods are, what certain values are. Now you don't have to reduce them all to one called utility or welfare. Right. I mean, that's the move, and I don't make that move. I think there are many different values. I, I'm a pluralist about good, about the value uh, that things can have in in the world and for humans in particular. Uh, and the other approach is, and then if you, if you go with the good-based approach, which is essentially the consequentialist approach, um, then you derive from the goods they do the rules that ought to be established that you should follow as an individual, the rules ideally that ought to be established in a society, the rules in a society that ought to be laws, the sorts of enforcement of those laws that ought to take place, it's all derived from human good, what most produced human good. The alternative, and I say it's a stark choice, is to say, no, no, we um, don't primarily look the good, what we look at is what is often called the right, meaning we look for these fundamental obligations or these fundamental claims or, in that sense, rights that people are supposed to have. And then we devise a society that's meant to answer to those obligations and rights. Now, there is a tendency um, for the right, so to speak, in politics to prefer that second approach, a right, let's call it a, a right right-based approach rather than a good-based approach. Um, and that may be because uh, if you do think there are rights that are fundamental, that are natural, that apply in all societies, regardless of culture or whatever, and then you say what we do in our society is honor those rights, it's hard to imagine, if you think there are rights like that, that they would extend to, say, positive rights to help other people, to further, you know, to help the poor or whatever. It's much easier to think they are just negative rights. Don't don't do harm, you know, don't do violence, don't steal, and so on. Um, and so they tend to be quite a narrow set of natural rights. And, and someone like Nozick is exactly in that position. And, um, you know, we've just out of the first abstract issue as to whether to go right-based or good-based in our moral and political theory. So maybe we should turn to the second about what is the good that we think... What should states should be, be promoting? What is the good? Well, I mean, there's all... Yeah, so there are many different responses, of course, on that. Um, and one traditional sort of response was and I suppose it's still true of some religious societies, that the state should be promoting the good according to some received religion, for example. That was true of, after all, most Western societies down to probably the Enlightenment. Um, the utilitarian tradition that emerged in the 1800s under Bentham, that you've been citing in a way, said, well, let, let, let's just boil it all down. Isn't it all about just human happiness, welfare? That's the 
and can we all agree on that? Um, uh, that's, um, that, 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 that's, I think there's something to be said for that sort of theory. I, it's not the theory I invoke myself particularly. What I'm inclined to say is to go back to uh, a value that everybody prizes, everybody says is important, and, uh, and that's freedom. And to say, look, I think we should think of the main good that the state is there to establish is the good of freedom. Of course, there's immediately a question of what you mean by freedom. And as you know, I think from my work, uh, for me, uh, the traditional conception of freedom that actually was in place down to the late 18th century, the late um, 1700s, um, is a conception that we should be retrieving. It was the conception that, the, uh, that for example, if, uh, w w was, I would say, endorsed by the founding fathers in America. Um, and indeed, as a tradition, it goes right back to Rome. And I think that notion of freedom, and perhaps we can talk about that at some point, um, gives us a very plausible account of the good that the state should be, should be doing. So when you say going back to Rome, you're referencing what we can call a republican theory of freedom there? Yes. Yes. Let's cash that out. What is a Republican theory of freedom and how might that contrast with um, a libertarian or neoliberal theory of freedom? Good. OK, well, in order to introduce what I often do, and in a recent book, Just Freedom, I use this a lot, is um, take a case of a woman like uh, Nora in that wonderful play by Henry Gibson, A Doll's House where she's married to Torvald, and uh, that's her husband, he's a young banker. Now, under the law of the, of the, um, of the period, um, and in Ibsen's play, Torvald has all the legal power. So Torvald has the power, for example, to dictate um, what she wears, who she associates with, whether she can go out on her own in town, whether she can go to the theater, uh, whether she's got a choice in religion or whatever, he's got total power over her in those respects and how much money she has to spend, obviously. He dotes on Nora, absolutely dotes on her, so he gives her, as we say, carte blanche. She can act exactly as she wishes within the normal range of choices. Now, a question I often ask uh, in trying to introduce these ideas is, do we think that Nora is free? Well, there is one way of thinking about freedom, and that is the common way, I would say, among libertarians who talk about freedom, among, um, among neoliberals, let's call them, who talk about freedom, which is to say that, well, all freedom means in a choice is that no one gets in your way. You're not interfered with. No one stops you. No one penalizes you. No one threatens you with penalties. No one deceives you. No one manipulates you. No one in that broad sense interferes with you. And then you're perfectly free in a choice. Now, if you take that way of viewing freedom, you'd have to say that Nora enjoys an enormous amount of freedom. She enjoys freedom as non-interference, as I call it. But actually, and I remember even presenting this in a lecture in, uh, to a very, very large group in China some years back, where I asked about 500 undergraduates, is Nora free, <laughs> having presented this story? And they all chorus, no. Now, you ask yourself, why isn't Nora free? And it doesn't take much thought to realize Nora is not free 
because while she can act as she wills, she can only do that so long as Torvald is willing that she should act according to her own will. It's Torvald's will that's ultimately in charge. Uh, she can only, when she goes to the theater, when she wears what she wishes or whatever, and she's enjoying a latitude of choice, but she only does it, she only enjoys it by virtue of his permission. And now this points us towards another way of thinking about freedom, which I think is the way of thinking about freedom that really was the dominant way of thinking about freedom right down to um, the late 1700s. And on this way of thinking about freedom, in order to be free, it's not enough that you're not interfered with. It must also be the case that there's no one who's got the power of interfering with you at, at will, so to speak. Uh, you're going to be unfree to the extent to which some other person can actually determine whether or not you can act as you wish within the relevant choices. Um, that, that's the fundamental, I call that freedom as non-domination because the Romans were very, very clear about this. I mean, they, they say, for example, take a slave whose master allows him or her um, act exactly as the slave wishes. Is the slave free? And the resounding answer in Roman thinking is that no, the slave is not free. The slave is not as we, uh, is not a liber, is not a free person. And the slave remains a slave, even with a kindly, sweet, goodly, easily deceived, gullible master. He's still got a master. He's under the will of another person, even though that person allows him, so to speak, act exactly as, as, as he wishes. Uh, for them, and for the long tradition down to the late 1700s, to be free meant you had to have the status of no one being master over you. You had to be undominated. They, they use the word Latin word dominatio, for what a slave suffered in relation to a dominus or a master. And so I, I tend to go, well, lots of people nowadays call that way of thinking about freedom, freedom as non-domination. It requires that you got no master. So the, so the yeah. antonym in each case is different. So the opposite of freedom, according to a neoliberal view, is interference, whereas the opposite of freedom, according to a neo-Roman or a Republican view, is domination or potential domination, even if it's not being exercised. Exactly. And, and that's got two really important implications. One is that... Uh, we should worry about arrangements under which one person has power over another, even if the person who has the power is relatively benevolent or benign. And so that's, as it were, socially quite radical, if you like, that idea that each person should therefore have some sphere in which that person is master in his or her own life, some range of choices where, um, except when they want it to be so, there is no one who stands over them. There's no one under whose thumb, as it were, they live. Uh, that's one implication if you think of freedom as non-domination. The other is that um, you can think of the state, if the state is, um, is properly controlled by its people, it of course always interferes with uh, people in laying down the law and applying the law, etc. But if it's in if it's controlled appropriately, democratically, by us, and by constitutional constraints and so on, while it interferes with us, 
it doesn't interfere with us just as it wills. It interferes with us more or less according to terms that we share as the terms that should be imposed on government so that government, while it interferes, does not dominate. Freedom is non-domination, therefore it condemns domination, even when there's no interference. That's like Torvald, it says you shouldn't have that sort of arrangement, but it's prepared, and I said prepared, to be accepting of the need for a state that interferes, provided that state is not dominating. Right. Those are the two sides of thinking of freedom in this way. So the natural consequence to sum up, or, or, or a logical consequence of the view of freedom of non-domination, is that it almost necessitates a democratic element of, of power arrangements. It necessitates a participatory element of um, any sort of state apparatus of control, because you have to be able to say if you are being subject to rules, to enforcement, to be free, they have to be in some way authored by the community they're being exercised over. Well, or in some way at least controlled by the community. So um, I think of the control we have as, as we the people establish terms in common deliberation that we come to take for granted, we concretize them in our institutions, and what we require of government is that it be disciplined, that it act, as I put in the title of one of my books, on the people's terms, to be restricted to acting on the people's terms. That certainly, I think, currently requires, obviously, electoral democracy, but it also requires constitutional constraints on government that are established and unbreakable, short of there being a constitutional amendment, and it requires a system in which people are enabled to contest government at every point. I think there's a huge range, and that's what democratic theory should be about, constitutional theory of determining what are the best instruments whereby you can contain government and ensure that while we allow it to interfere, that's the condition you pay for having laws and social order, we require it to be constrained on our terms in how it interferes so that it's not a dominus in our lives. So, for example, you know, I said in the private case that the benevolent master or husband like Torvald in that case is an enemy of freedom, even though he's benevolent. Equally, the government, no matter how benevolent it is, is an enemy of freedom if it's unconstrained, uncontrolled, undisciplined, not subject to the people's terms. It's in fact a benevolent despot. So you can think of republicanism in a way as being opposed to benevolent mastery or mastery of any kind, whether in private life or in public life. And it's not enough that the master, private or public, is benevolence. It's then a despotism, no matter how benevolent it is, because the will of the person with that power, private or public, is the will that's in charge, and that means your freedom is already compromised, even if there's no actual interference. So my next question then is how far does that um, theory apply to power structures that affect our lives that are not um, a state or a government body? So I'm thinking of... Um, a big corporation like Facebook, like Amazon, 
has a huge amount of power over our lives, even if we choose not to use those particular services. The big um, financial um, providers, you know, if the big, one of the big banks were to go under, that would affect everyone's mortgage, whether or not they were participating with that particular thing. So how far would that theory um, counteract a more libertarian view that says we should never really regulate or check or manage um, big free market enterprises? It would seem to me, at least, that the neo-republican theory would say that we absolutely should be in the business of exercising some control over at least the biggest of corporations, precisely because even if Facebook is wonderful and doing everything that we would want it to do, or even if the big banks are wonderful and providing brilliant services, they still exercise, they still have the potential to exercise a power over us that could be very harmful. Good. Um, well, my answer is yes. I'm afraid our world is, is replete with... Um, forms of domination which in a properly regulated legal system would be seriously contained and so for example you mentioned facebook i i, I wrote a um for a website in london actually about six months ago something which i call the big brotherhood looking at the you know the big um uh, internet providers and i mean the um social media providers like facebook and so on and argue that the problem isn't just that they've got access to um, private data. The problem is that having access to it, they're in a position to exercise all sorts of power over us. And to that extent, it's not just an assault on privacy, it's an assault on freedom. Um, and so it's ironic in a way that a system designed to encourage, you know, free speech, everyone can go on social media and send out their message should actually become a system in which we, um, our, our, our freedom, it seems to me, goes with our privacy. Because, as it were, the privacy is breached by bodies that have power. It's not as if it's a peeping Tom or something into your life who has no power over you. That's just a breach of privacy. But if the privacy is breached, if the person has access to um data on you that they can use as it were to blackmail you for example or persuade you to you know get in under the radar in various ways and manipulate you and uh, then they've got uh, even if they don't use that they've got power even if they don't use the power the fact that they have that power means they dominate you but in a way that's just a, I mean that's a contemporary um, example uh, but there are so many other examples of, of domination. So, for example, you mentioned corporations. Well, one thing that really worries me is the um, rapidly evolving and I would say degenerating state of workplace relationships in um, in corporate life, for example, in America and um, indeed all over the world. So, for example, um, one thing that really worries me is the right of an employer, this is particularly important with corporations, to fire at will, which um, exists in American law in many instances, not happily in other countries to the same extent. Because what does that mean? It means that an employee is basically at the mercy of a manager who can fire or hire, so to speak, at will, just at his, at his wish, given that 
being fired always has serious costs, even if you can get another job, the transaction costs and so on, their immense psychological and social costs. It means that there's someone there who's got this power of interfering in your life that's unregulated. I would argue very strongly that in any employment situation, it ought to be the case for at least uh, employees who've been there a certain time, that there's a procedure has to be gone through if a manager or an employer is going to establish that they they ought to be let go. The procedure need not be all that demanding, but it should put some cost on the manager um, so that if he or she fails, so to speak, in the effort to fire someone, it's embarrassing or whatever. Then there's a bit of a constraint, you see. There isn't the same domination. Or you take, um, I mean, in employment relations, again, in the United States, you should probably know uh, unions have almost disappeared. Um, of course, you know so well, I'm talking to you in London, but uh, you live in New York. Uh, unions have almost disappeared, and unions have been, I mean, they've been not an alloyed good, but neither are corporations an alloyed good. And man, when they were both there, you know, they constrain and contain one another, you know, but with unions gone, now employees are basically exposed to the winds of corporate power, you might say. And boy, has that power being exercised so that, for example, not only is there a right to fire at will, but um, nowadays um, there are um, lots of employment relations involving a non-compete clause, which means that if you voluntarily leave this corporation, you can't work in the same industry um, for a certain period, for example. That means that you're tied to that industry. It means that, again, you're dominated. You, you don't have the freedom to change job in effect because of this hanging over you. Or, you know, recent legislation has also made it very difficult for employees in America to bring a class action against their uh, against a corporation um, because of the so-called arbitration clauses in the contracts, which which say that in the event of a complaint, you go to an arbitration panel, you can't go to a court and therefore you can't class action with other people in the same industry or working for the same corporation elsewhere. That's an immense loss of power. So employees have lost extraordinary amount of power in America, I would say, in the last you know uh, quarter century or more. And there really is real domination in the workplace to that extent, even if employers are highly benevolent. Yes. So this brings me on to something I wanted to ask you next. Um, just to sum up, one thing you could say about our concerns about corporate power is it's not so much what corporations are doing to you. The, the scary question is to think, what could they be doing to you? Um, what could, I've been using Facebook, I think that's a good example. What could Facebook do if it had truly malevolent intent? But sticking with um, the idea of, of freedom in the sense of it being an employee, one of the things that's really both in you know my day-to-day -day life and also in some of the comments I get from the show is people who, by the societally accepted neoliberal standard of freedom, people who are free do not feel free. So you have people who have middle-income jobs. They have the freedom, in theory, to leave those jobs. They have the freedom um, in terms of they're not being constrained or interfered with it in any way. But they feel trapped in their jobs because they would not be able to support their families if they left them and they're not in a position to 
um, refuse an instruction from their employer that they might find unethical or just something that they don't want to do. And you've got this weird thing of people who are materially as prosperous as anyone in human history has ever been. I'm not even talking about poor people here. And by the accepted societal definition are free in that they're not being constrained with, but in, in a profound way don't feel free. I'd be interested in your thoughts there, but I, I think that's such a common experience now in contemporary America. Well, that, that, is, that, that is a matter of great concern, I think, because um, if you imagine a society in which people enjoy uh, Republican freedom, now in order to have that, the law would have to establish a set of what used to be called and still are called the basic liberties. So that's to say a set of choices such that everyone in that range of choice is sovereign in that province, right? They are their own, their own master. Um, now, if people really had an area of choice where they were in that sense their, their own master, and that requires a law that protects them, it also requires a law that, I would say, protects them against the possibilities of unemployment by providing dole against guards against you know, serious illness, by making medical insurance available, Guards against, you know, um, being uh, brought before the courts, for example, when you don't have the resources to defend yourself by providing for legal security, judicial security, legal assistance, which is actually guaranteed in the U.S. Constitution. Um, now, if you had a society where people had this sphere, where they really, you know, where their own, they were their own men and women, as we say, right? They form relations, of course, in which they come dependent on others but voluntarily from a position of strength. Now, in that image of society, um, people can walk tall. You know, I, uh, th there's a long tradition in Republican writing, particularly in 17th century and 18th century England and America, the English-speaking world, of talking about freedom as being able to walk tall, not having to bend the knee, not having to kowtow, not having to tug the forelock, you know, not having to live under the thumb of anyone else. And it's associated with a sort of forthrightness and frankness. So John Milton, for example, writing about the, the English Republic, talks about in our Republic, people will be able to walk, um, you know, with their head held high. I think I talk about what I call the eyeball test of freedom. In a society where people really did have freedom as non-domination in the range of the basic liberties equal with others, they would be able to look others in the eye without reason for fear or favor. And that seems to me a nice image of the ideal of the sort of freedom we're talking about. But notice, that's taking feeling as the most powerful index of whether you're free, that you can look others in the eye without reason for fear or deference, rather reason for feeling fear or deference. Of course, you might be highly timid, and you know, with the worst protection in the world, still feel fear or deference. So that's your problem. Uh, if the society is well organized, you at least don't have reason for fear or deference. Now, if people are feeling trapped, for example, they can't leave their job or what, of course, there are natural circumstances that we're all hemmed in by, and a, an economy that's flagging, for example, means that fewer jobs are available, and it's an important part of government to be able to nurture the increase in employment, for example, that goes without saying. But assuming you're working in a society where the economy is going at 
a reasonably um, successful rate, and then there is no reason why people should feel trapped like that. And I suspect if they do, it may be because of the problems in employment workplace relations that I talked about, you know, the problems of being able to be fired at will, the problems of having, for example, signed up to not work in the same industry if you if you leave voluntarily. Um, these are these are the sort of issues that I think would undermine that feeling of freedom that really ought to be there if there were protection. But if, you know, I really do bemoan the loss of the unions, you know, that I think that's really a great, great loss. Uh, very few people say that, you know, because you think of unions as, you know, fixers and and people in the background often, um, you know, found guilty of corruption and so on. But that happens in corporations just as much. The union was the one sort of, you could fight fire with fire. You know, the unions represent, it seems to me, the sort of fire that are important in uh, fighting off the fire of corporate power. This brings us full circle to the principles from which we started, right? In that, is is the good we're pursuing a set of abstract rules, or is it just goods that we know are good? We know it's good to stand tall, as you are, and I think that's a lovely phrase. And there's a contrast here that goes back to our original thing, is there's a set of abstract rules by which you could say you are free, you know. You are free in America to choose your employer, to, you know, you're meeting the abstract rules, but... At the end of the day, how much does that set of abstract rules matter if you don't feel it? It also goes back to what you say about we're pursuing a plurality of goods in that it's not just a Benthamite welfare, because I think this sense of unfreedom in the workplace could apply to very poor people, but it could apply to comparatively affluent people as well. So they have one set of goods in terms of they have material resources, but they don't have the other set of goods in that they feel that they can't look their employer in the eye without fear of fear, fear or favour, did you say? As the without reason, fear or deference. Ah, there we go. Well, um, yeah, so just to recap, I mean, the way we, we talked about having, I mean, as I at least prefer, a good base rather than a right base theory in politics, and we talked about selecting the good that it's important that we target in politics, and my proposal, the proposal of so-called neo-republicans, um, is that really if we just take freedom in this traditional very rich sense of non-domination, that's the only good you need worry about in politics as such. And now I said the third question as you determine the good is what are the institutions we should have? Now, we're talking about various rules, for example, governing laws, governing workplace relations and so on. But the rules of the institutions, you know, that we should have, they include the laws. And I would say there ought to be a law allowing uh, unions to form. There ought to be a law, um, um, for example, prohibiting, I would say, these no-compete clauses and prohibiting the arbitration clauses. Uh, but just having the law wouldn't be enough either, because you'd also have to have people willing to form unions, for example, and you'd have to have people willing to back one another up, you know, so that, um, uh, you know, people don't feel alone. They, they've got others at their back who are in the, the same situation. Now, these are institutions that 
the state can't manufacture. I think we have to rely on civil society as delivering those. And it's a very sad comment on our civil society that often it doesn't deliver those sorts of protections. It's like take move from the case of workers to the case of women. Um, it's one thing having a law, for example, against domestic abuse. Uh, but it's another thing having a community in which you'll be backed up if you're because that's usually the case if your husband is, for example, abusing you or to have a backup, you know, um, um, network of women who will help such a woman in distress, or maybe provide, you know, even homes for battered women as there are. It's very important you have those sorts of civil society institutions as well as the formal laws. All of this is part of having a society where, that enables people empowers people to enjoy this freedom as non-domination. Law is really crucial, but it's not, a law, it's not enough on, on, on its own. Final question is, how would you feel about um, anti-monopoly actions by governments? So when a, a certain uh, corporate power gets too big, the government can, takes to itself the power to come in and break it up. They tried to do this, I think, with Microsoft back in the day and failed, I believe. But the, the uh, idea that, that a certain amount of power unchecked is just inherently undesirable because even if they're not using that power nefariously, the fact that they could be, how would you feel about a government that really just did not allow corporations to gain, say, more than 60% market share, I choose the number arbitrarily, and just came in and broke them up because that would be a direct violation of libertarian or neoliberal conceptions of liberty, but it seems like it might be necessary in order to preserve a republican conception of liberty. No, it is. And here actually you find an area where I think that right and left can find some common ground. I mean, after all, the antitrust legislation, I mean, introduced in America in 1910, I think it was, uh, is comes of a recognition that it's one thing to have a free market, you know, in which people can make contracts of all kinds, etc., etc. But the assumption in that tradition is that we only have the market insofar as it produces certain goods. And when you get monopolies, those goods get compromised. That's true also of the good of freedom as non-domination. I mean, the marketplace can actually be a great source of freedom as non-domination. For example, Adam Smith, um, when he, I mean, arguably his notion of freedom was a Republican one, that he was still writing in the, in the 18th century, the 1700s. And uh, as he says somewhere, if I'm remembering properly, um, the great thing about a free market is that you're not tied to a particular ma master. Uh, you can move on to another master. And as he said, you know, the subject of many masters is the subject of none. You can always go and find another master. So from the very beginning, the notion of the free market has been associated with freedom as non-domination. And I would say from uh, in, in the longer tradition, certainly, um, it's been recognized that the market will not deliver that good and under various circumstances. And one of them is you get monopolies that establish, right, whereby 
they there's no one else you can go to the work for if you specialize in the area of the monopolist. The consumer dealing with the monopolist is at the mercy of the prices that he or she sets, more or less, um, without without constraint. Um, so that it's it's always been recognized, really. Uh, those who talk about natural rights and the market just let it rip because this is, this is just what our natural rights require. They're really very ahistorical, you know. The market grew up around ideas about the good that it could produce and the need to regulate it and constrain it in various ways, like the anti-monopoly, anti-trust legislation, in order for it to ensure that it produces these goods. The um, we're coming up on time, but this is a nice place to close. The um, justifications and philosophy that surrounded market systems when they came into existence was so much richer and so much um, better in many ways than the very narrow justifications that we get for the market nowadays, which seem to track back to one of our earlier points, almost a sort of religious deference, like we just have to do what quote-unquote the market says, we just have to follow that set of outcomes regardless, and the only constraint really worth the name is that of non-interference, whereas actually the initial vision of the market of Adam Smith, or a little bit later the idea of uh, perfect competition or Walrassian equilibrium, was this idea of many buyers, many sellers, perfect information, um, no barriers to entry. And the image you get is instead of a giant company, the image it's always brought to mind for me is of this huge marketplace where there's like, if you want to buy fish or grain or wheat, there's a hundred people you can go to to get that and you can go and talk to them all and compare and if you want to work there's a hundred different providers of the same employment that you can go and work to and that was always justified by a much richer and deeper conception of freedom and it seems like we've got away from that now like the justification for the market is just a deferential one well the the interesting thing about just picking up the corporation one, first of all, I mean, Smith himself was highly critical of corporations. There were few in existence at the time, but he was highly critical of them. He saw them as, um, you know, congealing of power in a few hands, um, basically um, to the detriment, disadvantage of most people. He certainly was in favor of the much more decentralized market you're talking of. Now, nowadays, our markets are controlled more and more by corporations that have been given more and more power by the laws of different countries, you know, and they have enormous power now that they can threaten a country to move offshore and thereby, you know, the country will actually defer to them and make laws that suit them or loosen up workplace relations, uh, relax environmental regulations. I mean, they can, they've got an extraordinary sort of power. It's totally antithetical, I think, to the the original vision. There is a way, and I would like just to mention this, it seems to me that some economists, um, maybe right-wing economists, I guess, but uh, they often delude themselves about the power of corporations by saying, look, oh no, the, the corporation is itself a market. The relations between people, it's just people. And people may operate in markets where they, you know, are independent of one another, or they may make contracts with one another to act together as within a corporation. But it's all just a, it's a more intense market, you know, the area in which people are related to one another as members of a corporation, say, 
employers, workers, and so on, than the market of the marketplace, um, where people buy and sell between different corporations or individuals. And that just, and, and they thereby say, oh, there are, these are not agents, corporations. That seems to me, and that's another theme I must say I've been very interested in. That's really an, a, a total delusion, corporate. I don't know body. what people are saying when they say that. They're like, oh, it's all just individuals. But you could say that of a nation state. You could say that of anything. It's all just, well, yes, I mean, in a certain sense, it is all just individuals. But when they say, oh, well, you know, a corporation is just individuals who come together to form a, co- a corporation. Yeah. So's Nazi Germany. Like, what are you saying here? You, you, you know, yeah. you're, that as a defense of corporate agency doesn't make sense. The defense of corporate agency would have to be something that recognizes that it is actually a thing, right? Good. And, well, I'm, you're saying, <laughs> in my ears. I entirely agree with that. I think we have to recognize that corporations, like states, are institutional agents in their own right, and that they've got enormous power. And of course, having power, they can dominate individuals, both the people who work for them, also their consumers, you know, and even more so now more and more, the very states within which they operate, because they become so powerful relative to states, that they can play states off against one another in a race to the bottom. Now, all of that means that they're enjoying a sort of domination that is absolutely inherently inimical to the freedom of ordinary people understood in the sense of non-domination. But to conclude, though, um, the, the, the punchline for this discussion isn't so much There is a sort of zero-sum conflict between Republican liberty and libertarian liberty as it's understood in a contemporary sense. But the solution isn't that the Republic defeats capitalism. The solution, or where we would ultimately want to go, is a restoration of what markets originally meant in terms of a vehicle of freedom and a vehicle of non-domination in a more larger pluralistic open market with many players as opposed to a few big powerful ones I mean yes I, I certainly uh, I, I certainly agree with that maybe one theme in which to end is this I mean the the two ways of thinking about freedom are interesting in the following respect if you think about freedom as non-interference um, you think well freedom doesn't require law on the contrary all laws actually interfere so they take from your freedom so the idea is you should be really, really um, wary about having too many laws, right? Call them regulations, you know? And you just let people go their way without laws, except for the very basic laws needed for, um, uh, for nonviolence in the society, whatever. Night watchman state. Freedom is the enemy. Our law is the enemy of freedom in a way, except in, in that minimal manner. If you go with freedom as non-domination, freedom depends on the law because freedom defines the sphere of basic liberties. The law defines the sphere of basic liberties in which you can enjoy freedom as non-domination. And law gives you the protections in virtue of which you can stand tall you know, and enjoy the exercise of, of freedom as non-domination in the sphere of the basic liberties. So on the one hand, the the the, uh, the neoliberal way contrasts freedom with law, whereas the neo-republican sees freedom as requiring law, 
And but that means you've got to really massage the law and get the law right, including the law governing corporations, governing employment relations, governing you know marriage, governing of course democratic institutions, in order for people to enjoy freedom within the law. Great. Um, if listeners are interested in this conversation, um, what would you recommend as an accessible introduction to Republican theory? <laughs> You're allowed to recommend UN books. In my own case, I would recommend um, I'd recommend uh, Just Freedom, a book I published in 2014 with Norton. Mm-hmm. It's a trade book, so it's meant to be fairly widely accessible. And um, there's a very nice book um, uh, written by Quentin Skinner, a historian who's very much part of the neo-republican uh, way of thinking, as as it's often described nowadays. Um, which was um, which is called Liberty Before Liberalism, mm-hmm. was published in, by Cambridge University Press in 1998, if I remember. I, well, I mean, those are two uh, th- those are two things that spring spring to mind. There are many many other things that have appeared recently, but um, you know, I think they're both fairly accessible. Great, fantastic. Let's pause there, um, Professor Philip. Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Real pleasure. And nice to talk with you, Toby. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do forward it or share it. If you're someone who is studying philosophy or works in a philosophy department... I'm sure you know someone who uh, would be interested in this project. It is quite a niche thing, so please do help get the word out if you're considering these conversations valuable. We have really some of the best people in the world coming on to talk about their areas of expertise, so help us get the word out there, either by forwarding it to people you think might be interested, or just sharing it on your own social media. Talking of... Really excited to quickly go through our lineup of guests. As I mentioned last episode, we kind of go back and forth between people working in philosophy in a more theoretic sense and people doing work in human rights and activism on the ground. One of the quite nice things about political philosophy is it can straddle the divide between theory and action and provide a bit of a bridge from political thought to political realities. So, On the more theoretic side, I'm going to be talking about the liberty principle, John Stuart Mill's idea that you can only be constrained to prevent harm to others, with Professor John Skorupski, who's the author of what I consider to be the best secondary text on John Stuart Mill's political theory. I will also be talking with Will McCaskill, who's an Oxford University professor of moral philosophy and is best known for his work to found the moral altruism and the effective altruism movement. I'll be talking to him about moral uncertainty. And then I have a huge three-parter, yes, three-parter series with Professor Dale B. Martin of Yale, who is a New Testament scholar and historian. In the first part of that series, we're going to talk about approaching the New Testament from a historical perspective and what it is that those people at the time think they saw 
in the body of a resurrected Jesus, and I'm going to call that episode A Body of Electricity and Air, which is Professor Martin's way of describing that. The second episode we'll call Slaves of Christ and deals with the theology of Paul. And the third episode I'm planning on calling Postmodern Christianity, which centers around Professor Martin's claim that some facts can be historically false, but theologically true. So, I can, despite being an atheist, really nerd out on New Testament history. I hope you'll join me for those. On the more practical side, I have just spoken to Peter Tatchell, uh, who's the UK's leading campaigner for gay rights, and we talk about a number of issues relating to gay liberation, from sex education in schools to um, different theories of how we should have marriage or not marriage moving forward. That was a really fun conversation, and I really enjoyed that. And finally, I will be continuing with the theme of intersectional atheism, which I'm increasingly realizing is a label that's almost designed to just annoy everyone. Well, it's my podcast, so too bad. I will be talking with the president of Black Nonbelievers, Mandisa Thomas, who's a really cool, smart woman who's doing a lot of great work to help promote atheism in the black community in America. So, if that sounds interesting to you, then please do follow and subscribe. Probably the best way to keep up to date is to subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where I'll post updates, I'll post the new episodes. I also occasionally post quotes and philosophical arguments. So if this wasn't enough political philosophy for you, uh, please do follow us there. And the links to all of that are on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So thank you again for listening, and thank you to people who've... um, stayed with us through the whole series thus far. I really appreciate the audience. And that's about it. Until next time.